through these events. These, there, there are six events, actually, that occur uh, towards the end, and we've looked at five of them. Uh, the first thing we said was there are these, these birth pains that are going to happen, and those don't mean anything other than you're alive. And that's um, the first few verses there in chapter 24, earthquakes and famines and all that. It just means that you're living. And then there's this abomination that causes desolation. We've said we don't know what that is, some antichrist-type figure who's going to arise at some point and wreak a lot of havoc. There's the great tribulation that's this squeezing. And I said my theology is that we're, we have to live through that. Some people believe that we get um, taken up to heaven before that. They're wrong, but that's what they think. For the rest of us, we're, you have to live through that. And so then you've got these cosmic events, the sun turning dark and the moon turn into blood and stars falling out of the skies. Then you have Jesus' return, and that's in Matthew 24, 30 and 31. And what that says very plainly is that everybody's going to know. As clear as the lightning in the east is in the west, you're going to know that Jesus returns. You don't have to worry about um, not knowing or being caught unaware. It's going to be obvious to everybody when he returns. And then he kind of takes this bit of of a sidebar, and he talks about these three things that we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. We, don't, we know that he's going to return, but we don't know when. So his return is certain, but the exact timing is unknown. It's going to be unexpected. There's, we're going to be surprised. And because of that, we need to be ready at any time. Because we don't know exactly when he's going to return. We need to be ready for him to return at any time. And last week, we talked about what does it mean to be ready. There's a relational piece that says, I have deep enough roots in Jesus that I can stand firm to the end. And there's a lifestyle piece that says, I'm a good steward. I'm, I'm, I'm using the resources that God has given me, and that's a broad-term resources. I'm using all of the good things that God has given me in a way that brings glory and honor to him. And so that's what we looked at last week. We want to be ready, relational component, and a lifestyle component. And this morning, what we're going to look at is the final judgment, which is the last piece in this ordering of events, and it it happens immediately after Jesus' return. There's a chapter worth of material in between, but chronologically, you jump from 5 straight to 6. So we're going to start in uh, verse 31 of chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. So that sounds just like what we read about when Jesus returns and these angels come with him. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you, did not, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, 
but the righteous to eternal life. So first thing is this is not a parable. This is a picture. This is a picture of how things are going to play out at the end. This is Revelation 20, the exact same scene, just described in a different way. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and the sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another, another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So two descriptions of the same scene. So this is a universal judgment. Jesus, in in Matthew 25, he says, all nations. So every person is going to stand before the throne to be judged. And judgment has negative connotations for us, which is fine, but... It's, it's the process of holding us accountable. That's what judgment is. It's the process of saying, what have you done with your life? And then your eternal destiny is determined by the answer to that question. That's what judgment is. It's the process of rewarding, whether that's a positive or a negative, the conduct um, of our lives. And so this parable he uses, or this picture, he uses the metaphor of a shepherd. Uh, goats and sheep would graze together during the day when they come Came in at night, the shepherd would take the goats inside because they wanted to be warm, and he would leave the sheep outside because they wanted to be cool. So this is something that everybody would get. Yeah, the shepherd separates sheep and goats every night. Right hand is a place of honor. Left hand is a place of dishonor. Very straightforward. I think when you read this passage, the thing that's the trickiest about it is, is this whole idea that people are judged based on what they do. And so we start saying, or I start saying, is this works-based? righteousness am I going to be judged is my eternal fate determined by who how well I treat whoever the least of these brothers of mine is whatever that phrase means he says whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine you did to me and it seems like destiny is determined by whatever we do with those guys if we're kind to them then we're sheep if we're not kind to them then we're a goat so first question, is this teaching some type of social gospel or um, works-based righteousness? You know, the answer to that is no. The Bible is consistent throughout. You see this explicitly in the New Testament. We're not saved by what we do. We're saved by entering into a relationship with the Savior, who is Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says it's by grace we've been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God so that no one should boast. Very plain, very explicit, very clear. What saves us is our relationship with Jesus, not what we do. And so the question for me really is, who are, these, who are the least of these brothers of mine? What is Jesus talking about? What is he holding people responsible for? It's maybe a little bit technical, but this passage can tend to trip some people up, so I'm going to get into the weeds. If it's not where you want to go, I'll call you back. You can play on your phone. I'll call you back in a couple of minutes to the rest of it. Every time you read Matthew, you'll see the phrase little ones. It always refers to the disciples, every single time. If you read through Matthew, there's five or six occurrences of this phrase, little ones, always refers to the disciples. When he says least, least is the superlative form of little. It's, the words are connected. He's talking about the same. And every time you see the word brothers in Matthew, it refers to disciples, unless it's referring to someone's biological kin. 
So take out those instances where it's referring to someone who's literally a blood brother. He's, it refers to disciples. So the least of these brothers of mine is referring to disciples. And so then the question becomes, well, is Jesus not judging us based on how we treat the poor in all the world? Is he, trading, is he judging us based on how we treat poor Christians? And throughout the New Testament, you see this especially in the Gospels, there's this idea that accepting the messengers is accepting the message. And rejecting the messengers is rejecting the message. Here's this slide that shows just two instances of this, one in John and one in Luke. And you can see very clearly, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. You see the same thing again. Rejecting the messengers, that's rejecting the message, that's rejecting Jesus, that's rejecting the Father. Accepting the messengers is accepting the message, is accepting Jesus, is accepting the Father. Sometimes that's difficult for us. We're southern hospitality people. We kind of, we welcome everybody. Different here. Hospitality is a huge issue. Welcoming somebody in said, hey, we're, we're together on this. You can see this in Matthew 10. You don't remember this. It's been so long since we've looked at Matthew 10. But it's, uh, it's his first ever missionary journey. On the first mission trip ever, Jesus sends out his 12 disciples. He said, I want you to go into the towns. I want you to preach the good news. I want you to heal the sick. I want you to raise the dead. And he says this in verse 14. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. So get it? If they're rejecting you, I want you to shake off the dust and then listen to what he says about them. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I want you to think about that. Think about what you know about Sodom and Gomorrah. And what Jesus says is it's better for those folks, for Sodom and Gomorrah, than people who reject you when you're going door to door to tell them the gospel. That's a powerful statement. Again, there's this idea in rejecting the messengers, you're rejecting the message. And, in, and you're rejecting Jesus and you're rejecting the Father. Look over in verse 40 of chapter 10. You see the same idea. He who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Anyone who receives a righteous man because he's a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. If anyone gives even a cup of cold water, there's that idea of hospitality to one of these little ones because he is my disciple. There's that phrase, little ones. I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. So what's going on here is the same thing that you know to be true in your reading of the New Testament. We're saved because we enter into a relationship with Jesus. All of this stuff in the sheep and goats, what Jesus is saying is, if you've rejected my messengers, if you haven't shown kindness to them, if you haven't shown hospitality to them, he, he doesn't, this doesn't mean go feed a missionary and you go to heaven. That's not what this is teaching. This, what this is saying is, if you've received them, then you've received this message. And in receiving that, you've received Jesus and the Father. And in rejecting them, all of that rejection follows. Now, there's tons of support in the Bible for taking care of the poor. This just isn't it. But there's tons of it. The, the, the thing for us is recognizing the fruit of a relationship versus the basis of a relationship. The fruit of a relationship with Jesus is you will take care of the poor because God cares about them. And you will too when you enter into a relationship with him. You'll begin to care about the things that he cares about. There'll be, there'll be fruit there. 
Bo prayed something interesting at the beginning. He said something along the lines of, God, conform our character to yours in a way that most effectively shows people who you are. Interesting to think about that. What most effectively shows God who you are or who he is in you? Some of that is going to be taking care of people that we tend to step over. Absolutely, that is a biblical value, kingdom value, is caring for other folks, particularly the poor. However, that's the fruit of a relationship with Jesus. That is not the basis of our salvation. We're not saved because we give clothes to goodwill. We're not saved because we're, we give money to a homeless guy. We're not saved because we're kind to strangers. We're saved because we enter into a relationship with the Savior. That's what saves us. And that's what's going on here. Jesus isn't contradicting the rest of the New Testament that says we're saved by grace through faith. The way that's expressed here is through this idea of welcoming his messengers. Everybody clear on that? Good. So, a couple of things for us. What does this mean for us? I thought of two things. One, if what I do in this life what I do in this life determines my destiny for the next. Uh, I was, so what does Jesus say about the destination? What does he say about the next life? What does he say about heaven and hell? Somebody asked me the other day what I think about heaven is for real and all those books. I don't think anything about them. I, I don't. Um, I don't get in. I don't wade into those things. I trust Jesus and hear the things that he says about heaven and hell. And you can decide how this lines up with those other things that you've read. This is just in Matthew. What I want you to notice is the relational character of both of these places. Actually, it's probably better to not even think of them geographically, but to think of them relationally. We tend to think of heaven is up and hell is down, and the Bible talks that way too. But rather than seeing these things as geographic realities, maybe see them as relationships. So heaven, in Matthew, Jesus talks about heaven as sitting at... sitting at a feast with his father, the kingdom of his father, eternal life, sharing the master's happiness. It's a kingdom prepared for us since the creation of the world. You get this idea that heaven is being connected to the father. And then you see hell on the other side. Look at the words, outside in darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What else does that say? Body and soul are destroyed, fiery furnace. Where does anybody know how to gnash teeth? Nobody at nine did. Anybody? Gnash your teeth. That's it? That's a bad noise. So, that's what's going to be going on there, is that noise, gnashing of teeth, eternal fire, eternal punishment, eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So there's this idea that heaven is is staying connected intimately with God, and hell is not. It's outside. It's darkness. It's a fiery furnace. It's, It's this place where God is not. What helped me was John 17, 3. This is eternal life, knowing the one true God and Jesus who he has sent. If you can think of eternal life that way, as a relationship with God, then the rest of this stuff can become a little bit easier to grab onto. If you think of heaven and hell primarily as places, then at some point you may say, I don't get why God leaves someone in hell for so long. Like, how long is long enough? At what what point, how come they don't get another shot at this? How come they don't get, at what point have they kind of worked out, they paid for their crimes? 
But if you see eternal life primarily as a relationship, which I think is what you'll see biblically, again, John 17, 3, you saw these passages from Matthew, this idea that heaven is primarily relational versus geographical, then it begins to make sense. If, if eternal life is knowing God, and God is eternal, and God is the source of all good things, then what we know of heaven follows from that. There's a, there's a pic, there's a, this is Revelation 20 through 22. You can read that. It's, it's a description of heaven, and it's a description of hell in Revelation. Look how hell is described. This says the same thing. Burning sulfur, fire, burning sulfur, fiery lake of burning sulfur, and the second death. And then heaven, I could, that's not all. That's just all I could fit on the screen. Look at the difference. Holy city, dwelling with God, no death, mourning, crying, pain. Brilliant like a precious jewel, no night. Glory and honor brought there. Water of life flowing down the middle of the road. Tree of life bearing fruit. No more curse. So this is not sarcastic at all. I don't get why anybody chooses the left if the right is an option. That's no, no sarcasm. When, when, you, when I look at the differences between those two things, if nothing else in our passage, it says heaven has been created for you. It's a place prepared for you, the kingdom prepared for you since creation. So on one hand, I can have that. And it says hell is this lake of fire prepared for the devil. So do I want what's been prepared for me? Or do I want what's been prepared for the devil? My choices are spend forever in this place prepared for the devil with him or to spend forever with God in a place prepared for me. I don't, I don't know why you, and again, not, no sarcasm. I don't know why you don't, it's not a choice to me. Even if Jesus is wrong, is it worth the risk that he's right? That forever in the place prepared for the devil? If you think again, John 17, 3, if eternal life is, is knowing God, if it's this relational thing, then I'm connected forever to this source of all good things. It's inter- you don't make too much out of this. In Matthew 25, it says that heaven is this kingdom prepared for us. and says hell is this place prepared for the devil, which makes me think that originally it wasn't prepared for us. Hell is not from time eternal. Heaven was, hell was created because of sin. If you read Genesis 1 and 2, the idea is we're staying connected. And then suddenly in Genesis 3, there's a fall. And so God, all right, so where's the place for the people who don't want to be connected to God? Where's the, where, where, how does that work? If eternal life is knowing him and being connected to him, who is the source of all good things, then God has to create this little space for the people to go that don't want to be connected to him. If you've ever read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, it's a great picture of heaven and hell. Hell is this, it's a speck. It's so small. It's this little bitty space because it's where God is not. Where he says, all right, you've rejected and rejected and rejected. You don't want to be in relationship with me. I'm not going to force that on you. So I'm going to create a space for you to go so you can have your own way. I'm going to create a space for you to continue to live apart from me. That's what hell is. And what follows from that, if, the, if he is the source of all good things, then that means you're cut off from all good things. And that's why it's fiery and burning, and that's why you're gnashing your teeth and you're weeping and it's dark. That's why all of those things follow. If he is light and you're cut off from the light, what's left? Darkness. 
If he is joy and you're cut off from joy, what's left? Weeping. If he's peace and he's fulfillment and you're cut off from that, what's left? Gnashing of teeth. That's, it's what's left. If you remove everything good. And the removal of everything good is based on the relationship. I've rejected, I've resisted for however long I've been here. And so in, in death, God just or at this judgment seat, he just says, I'm going to give you what you've been wanting your whole life. I'm going to withdraw completely from you and leave you completely on your own, which is hell, life without him. There's this relational peace that I think holds all of it together, takes away this idea of God as some vindictive parent who's just continually punishing and punishing and punishing and punishing. He's just giving people what they've asked for, and he, which is life apart from him. You're going to live forever. The choice is just, are you going to live forever with him or not? Second thing it made me think about. So if, if my life now determines my ultimate destination, I want to know, well, what are, what are my options? My options look to be heaven or hell. And to me, it's, it's not much of a debate at that point what my choices are. One is really great and one is not good at all. Easy choice for me. So then my second question becomes, well, if that's true, if I'm going to live forever, is there, is there anything about that forever that impacts the way I live now? If how I live now impacts forever, does forever impact how I live now? Does it kind of reach back into my life here and now? Let me give you an analogy. So the most literal reading of Scripture from the most fundamentalist guy in the world, if they just add up the years that people have been alive, they'll tell you the earth is 6,000 years old. Nobody, very few people say that. But that's the minimum that you're going to get. So let's take that 6,000 and say that's how long the earth has been around. Average age for a man is 72. Average age for a woman is 79. We'll split the difference and say you live to be 75. So we've got this 6,000 years. That's how long the earth has been around. And you're going to live for 75. So you're kind of looking at here's how long the Earth has been around, and I'm going to live for this much of it. Now, if we want to make that into something that we can understand or that we can grasp, let's say that 6,000 years is equal to 24 hours. So let's say the Earth has been around for a day, for a 24-hour day. Do you know how long you're going to live? 18 minutes. That's it. 18 minutes, that's what you get. I've been talking for more than 18 minutes. Since I've been talking, you've been born You've gone through puberty, you've gotten married, you've had kids, you've gotten old, and you've died. It's done. That's, that's what we get. And forever is so much more than 6,000 years. If I told you for 18 minutes you were going to be completely and totally miserable, and maybe you have been for the last 18 minutes, and so you could, I, I'm with you. But if I said that's what you're going to get, it's going to be awful. Every bad thing that you can think of. But if you can get through that, if you can get through that connected to Jesus in complete and utter misery, then you get 23 hours and 42 minutes of perfection, whatever that looks like. Who, do you take the deal? 18 minutes of misery for 23 hours and 42 minutes of perfection? Flip it. What if I told you you get 18 minutes of Pure joy, whatever that looks like for you, apart from Jesus. But, but the, what you're going to reap from that, the consequences is 23 hours and 42 minutes 
of unimaginable pain and desolation and despair. Do you take it? What do you call the people who take that? Short-sighted. Or maybe you say something worse about them. We're not, I'm not saying anything about anyone. I'm just saying if you put it in those terms, isn't it clear? The issue for us is the only way we know time is in seconds and minutes and hours and days and weeks and months and years. And we start talking about eternity, none of us can count that high. We don't get it. It's like asking a fish about water. They can't tell you. It's all they know. This is all we know. All I know is living life sequentially. Monday and then Tuesday and then Wednesday and then Thursday and then 38 and 39 and 40 and 41. That's all I know. And for somebody, for Jesus to say, hey, listen, you're going to live forever. I'm going, no, this is all I know. I've been alive for 38 years and it seems like a long time to me. I can't imagine forever. And so for me to think it could be complete misery for 40 more years until I die, that's hard. Or to somehow think that the, this, this future that I can't even see somehow should affect the way I live now, that's hard. And that, but that's the offer on the table to us. There's a perspective shift that needs to happen there for us. I'm not saying you want to live a, a permanently in crisis mode. You can't do that. You can't live like time is running out. And that's not how Jesus wants you to live. But there's a level of intentionality behind how we need to live. Imagine if you knew you only had 18 minutes. What does that do to your priorities? People probably become more important than maybe they are sometimes. And maybe even particular people. If you knew you had 18 minutes, what if you knew they only had 18 minutes? Then what happens? Particularly if you think they're on the wrong side of the fence. What happens to your problems if you only have 18 minutes? Y'all have heard of first world problems? You can't reach the remote. You have to actually get up. Your Kindle runs out of batteries when you're trying, just about to finish the book. Those are first world problems. It's not real. Trivial inconveniences. You can Google it. There's a, most of our, pro, some of our problems are significant. Many of them are not. And if I knew I had 18 minutes, what happens? Probably means I live with a lot less stress and a lot less worry and a lot less anxiety. Because I realize, you know, some of these things that I'm, that are twisting me up, they don't matter. There's probably room for more joy and more peace, more freedom in my life. There's probably more intentionality in terms of how I relate to people. My priorities probably shift a little bit. But on the, on the, in addition to that, my problems probably take on a whole different character. And things that, I, that keep me up at night probably don't keep me up at night as much anymore if I know all I've got is 18 minutes. Again, that's not to, we can't live in crisis mode, but there's a perspective shift there for us to recognize the time that we have and to say it's not just that what I do now is going to affect my forever, it's that my forever needs to affect what I'm going to do now. If I know that my 75 years, it's, it's less than a drop in the bucket of forever, but if I know that's true, then how does that impact what I do on Tuesday? It should on some level. And that's what I want us to spend a second. I just want us to ask the Lord. So you all can close your eyes. I'm going to pray. I want you all just to listen to the Lord on this. God, we want to be people who live in light 
of eternity. So a couple of things. I pray for any in the room who wonder if they're a sheep or a goat. And I pray that they would hear your invitation to relationship today. They would hear you saying, you don't have to stay outside. You can come in. There's been a place prepared for you. You don't have to clean yourself up. You just need to say yes to the invitation. And God, I pray that they would do so this morning. Not out of guilt or any of those things. But because they've heard their father inviting them into relationship. God, for those of us who've said yes to you, who are in relationship with you, God, I pray that that relationship will begin to color everything that we do. I pray particularly this idea that we're going to live forever. You say you put, you put eternity in the hearts of every man and woman, and God, we want that, that reality to begin to permeate the way we live our very temporary lives here. So God, when it comes to priorities and when it comes to problems, I pray that you would speak very specifically to each of us. What does it look like? What do my priorities look like in light of eternity? What do my problems look like in light of forever? God may be bringing names to your mind. You may be seeing faces. You just need to begin to pray for those folks. We don't need to be aggressive and take out billboards, start pestering people. That's, none of that's helpful. Acts 1.8 says that we'll be his witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. So we'll receive power. You, as a Christian, you have access to the power to be a witness in a way that fits how God has made you. So you don't need to feel pressure to start going door to door. Begin to pray for the names and the faces that God's bringing in front of you. And there may be other situations that God's bringing up. But this idea of living in light of eternity will begin to shape. God, I pray for those of us who, I pray not only would you realign our priorities, but I also pray for our problems. And God, that we will begin to see them in light of eternity and that would release joy and peace and freedom for us. Some of us who are so bound up and wound up and stressed out, God, I pray that we would recognize and realize where those problems, just perspective on those problems. Again, no sense of living in crisis mode. But God, we want to live with intentionality and the freedom that comes from knowing that this life matters because there's a next one. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close with ministry time. We'll have ministry teams up here in these corners, and we'll pray with you about anything that you have going on, anything related to the message or if there's something else going on in your life. We'd love to pray with you. And then uh, otherwise, you can just worship with Bo, and he will dismiss us when this song is over. You guys can stand.